is the Voicing Creativity Podcast, Voicing Creative Research. I'm Shannon Vickers, professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg, where I teach somatic approaches to voice and performance and engage in interdisciplinary arts-based research. This first season of the Voicing Creativity Podcast focuses on voicing creative research. Each episode showcases the prolific and inspiring work of some of Canada's leaders across the humanities, highlighting their creativity in research, pedagogy, and artistic practice. Today's episode features Dr. Jenny Kajon Wills. Dr. Jenny Kajon Wills is the author of Older Sister, Not Necessarily Related which won the 2019 Weston Writers Trust Nonfiction Prize and the Eileen McTavish Sykes First Book Prize. It was named by the Globe and Mail as one of the most important books of 2019, by CBC as a best in nonfiction for 2019, and by the Winnipeg Free Press, one of the most significant books in the last decade by a Manitoba author. Wills is also co-editor of Adoption and Multiculturalism, Michigan Press 2020, and Teaching Asian North American Texts, Modern Language Association 2022. She is Professor of English at the University of Winnipeg, where she is currently serving as Chancellor's Research Chair. She is a Fulbright alum, Harvard, and in 2016 was a visiting scholar in the Center for the Comparative Study of Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. Wills was born in Seoul and raised in a white adoptive family in Southern Ontario, Canada. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Kajon-Wills, for meeting with me today for the podcast. Thank you for having me, Shannon. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, When I reached out to you about being on the podcast, I was so thrilled that you accepted to be on it. Um, I read your book shortly after hearing that you'd won that prestigious Chancellor's Research Chair, and it was so beautiful, so exquisitely evocative and poetic. And I immediately became a big fan of yours. <laughs> and oh, I thought it was just beautiful. And I just thought, you know, you would be a wonderful um, artist and, um, you know, poet to speak to that is also an academic. Um, and sort of to bring you on the podcast to g- give us a bit of a window into your shift from research towards um, creative work, research and scholarship, and academic publishing into creative work. Would you give us a bit of a window into how that process unfolded for you? And I ask as an artist. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you so much for this really insightful and such generous introduction. Um, I feel it's a lot to live up to, to be honest, knowing your own CV. Um, Oh my gosh, no. But I will say that, you know, I'm I'm fortunate enough to work in an English department and so was trained in literary studies. Um, and so, so the jump to doing creative research wasn't as large as one might have thought. Also, fortunately, as you know, here at the University of Winnipeg, all of our research output um all, all of us can create creative research output to qualify towards um, towards the knowledge mobilization that we do. So, so it wasn't that difficult. But I will say, it's interesting that sometimes people say, you know, the kind of writing that I do isn't research based, but in fact, it is. I just mm-hmm. feel that there are ways to sort of hide in plain sight some of that research or express it in a different mode that people are maybe slightly less familiar with. I love that you're bringing that up at the top of our time together because I I engage deeply with a lot of your many podcast appearances and um, some of the things that I found on YouTube. And I just, I loved each and every one of those interviews so much. And they really filled in so much story around your Um, creative work and storytelling. Um, That was a gift to um, witness some of these amazing interviews. I wonder if you could um, speak a bit about that um, 
idea, and you know, I, I had a little quote that I had written down here that you had mentioned um, that you wanted to write something that you felt was beautiful and that felt poetical and that felt a bit closer to you in those ways, and that the scholarly research is all there underneath the surface. And I wonder if you can uh, speak a bit to that. You know, most of my um, publications have been in the form of creative work, and I'm actually shifting towards more traditional modes of scholarship. And I've often felt like what we do as artists, and I suppose this is the whole purpose of the podcast really, is to serve the field of performance voice with some resources to get some ideas about how we, what we do as creative artists in the academy is valid. And, you know, maybe speak to all that research that we do that goes into that performance. Um, and so I wondered if you could share a bit more of all of the research that goes into producing this acclaimed, beautiful text that you wrote. Sure. Thanks so much. You know, I wrote my doctoral thesis on the same subject matter that my memoir was about. So so it's not as though um, I didn't do traditional forms of knowledge acquisition in the mm -hmm. pursuit of this. Um, in fact, I worked for almost a decade and have also published academically in the same field, which is transnational and or transracial adoption studies. Mm -hmm. However, when it came time to write this particular book, um, I, I just felt as though the way that I could participate in those conversations in a way that felt more comfortable for me and also more visible for me would be to enter into those discussions um, through literary text. I, I admired literary writers so much. I just thought, and maybe it's hubris, I just thought um, that's the thing that I can do to stand out a little bit or to um, to participate in a slightly different way. And, and it was helpful having done those traditional kinds of research because I knew exactly how, where, and why I wanted to enter into the discourses in the ways that I did. Ooh, I love that. And so you mentioned that you kind of knew the how, the where, and the why. Um, would you be open to sharing a bit about those uh, pathways? Uh, you know, how did, how did you... Um, come to this? I mean, I had read a little bit and heard a little bit about your poetry writing that evolved over time. You were in a creative process, it sounds like, on a sabbatical, and then you, you decided to go for it. And, um, and perhaps the why as well. I'd love to hear about that. Please and thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So I read um, some brilliant life stories, but also novels when I was doing my research, um, my more traditionally academic research beforehand. And I noticed that, you know, from a narrative studies perspective, that the majority of the trajectories followed the path of a very linear chronologic story that began, um, you know, in childhood. Mm -hmm. culminated towards, in my case, because it's an adoption reunion story, culminated towards that reunion, whether it was successful or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a secret lover of Victorian literature myself also, I always wondered what happens the next day after Darcy and Elizabeth get married. I always <laughs> wonder what happens the next day after, um, you know, a thousand pages of romance <laughs> literature. And you know these people aren't suited for one another, but it's the shenanigans that follow. That's that's what you're you're um sort of looking for. And and so knowing that the majority of the adoption stories I had seen followed a particular teleological framework, I wanted to say you know, I have an experience of reunion. I'm going to start at the point of reunion and move mm. forward and backwards. And mm show a little bit of a different approach to this because I do feel that I have, being one of the fortunate people who has made contact, I do feel that I have a unique position and responsibility to, um, to address the, uh, the mythology of reunion and the messiness of it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I, I, as someone who has been such a fan and loved reading the book, it's amazing to hear you speak that you started at the point of reunion and decided to sort of move backwards and forwards and in and out of that um, as a starting point. You know, I, I love 
I, I'm always a big fan of when there is a form and then an artist comes along and, you know, plays with it and makes it, as you say, different or kind of messes around with that. I'm always fascinated by that. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading of memoir and life writing the last couple of years with the pandemic, and I've noticed there's been some really creative um, uh, ways that people have been writing. Um, your book, you know, really being uh, so inspiring to me in the form. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I wonder if there's another question there in terms of, because, you know, you had mentioned the how, the where, and the why. Like, is there anything else you'd like to say about that? Um, any of those three uh, departure points, I suppose. I mean, maybe also I could say something about the why, and it's probably the reverse of the thesis of your entire podcast, and that is... Um, I just couldn't do any more academic writing. It just felt so unnatural in my mouth and coming from my fingertips on the keyboard. Um, it felt so laborious to me mm -hmm. and so unsettled in in my um, in my body that I couldn't do it anymore. And so it wasn't an intentional shift towards the creative. It was an unintentional avoidance of the academic, to be honest. Um, as, as you mentioned, I was on sabbatical when I wrote this story and I, I mean, I had a shirk to be writing a monograph about, um, to be transforming my thesis into a monograph and I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, um, muster the concentration or the interest to be honest and, and what emerged was something, um, unpredictable to me, but if it, it does feel slightly like a homecoming towards the way that I think I was intended to communicate the ways that I research and think about concepts. It, it does feel like a homecoming to me. I love that. I love that you uh, you say that what he, what emerged was unpredictable. You know, I think that's such a huge part of being an artist and being in the artistic process is that we can um, have an impulse or a feeling and and realize that that's starting to grow and grow and grow and take over <laughs> our time when we should be focusing, should be, you know, the idea of should, I don't want to should myself or should others, you know, this idea of like, oh, we have to do this other stuff. And for me, I'm an artist and I like, I like creating. Um, and so, yeah, you mentioned unintentional avoidance. Um, <laughs> I love that phrase. Uh, can I ask then, it's my my sort of sense, um, and you know, this is our our first real chat, so here it is being recorded. Um, so you know, I'm just going to tell you, I'm a big fan. Um, <laughs> is would you say that you've been an artist your whole life? Um, I noticed, you know, when we've had meetings, that you have a beautiful piano, and your writing is so poetic. Your engagement on these podcasts is so poetic. Uh, you you really are such an amazing artist. And I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about your life, you know, engaged in the arts and what's that, what that's been like Thanks. since you were a child and what, what kind of creative pursuits did you follow throughout your life? Um, you know, you're the first person who's ever asked me this actually. So I don't have a canned answer for you, but, That's okay. um, but I, I will say, you know, I was very drawn to visual arts as a child, mostly. Mm. And um, really wanted to do something in visual arts um, for a career. Mm. Um, my parents were in education. And even though my parents are white people, they really, I don't know if that was like where the Korean stuff came in, but they were not particularly supportive of a career in the arts. Mm. And so um, I secretly did, you know, a minor in fashion design when I was doing my journalism degree. Oh, my gosh. I love hearing um, this. <laughs> and, um, and I knew I didn't want to be a journalist because it seemed at the time to be the most perfunctory kind of creation. Um, so I went back to school to do literary studies because professor was considered an appropriate career path. And I thought, well, you know, I'm really good at reading stuff. I'll just do that. I guess, um, but uh, but you know, I I never took a creative writing course um, in college or anything like that. Love that. It, it was it was just sort of it was 
accidental, but uh, unavoidable, I <laughs> think. And 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 I think it it it's linked somewhat to hopefully what is my philosophy in life, and that is I've I've had a very um, charmed but also very ugly life, and that is to try to do beauty making and to try to make the world beautiful, um, whether it's by my own hand or the way that I see it or the way that um, you look mm. a server in the eye when they bring you a cocktail at 5 o'clock p.m. Yeah. Um, it's about beauty making in the world, I think. Oh, can we hang out with that for a while? <laughs> this is just rich, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful topic here. Um, what What do you mean by beauty making? You know, I, I have um, admired your artistry um, in fashion as well. So I just am delighted that you shared <laughs> that you have a background in, um, in fashion in your undergraduate uh, education. Please speak to this idea of beauty making. I think we should be doing this nonstop in life, everywhere we go in every context. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the world is brutal already, and there's already too much ugliness. Um, and beauty and beauty making is a political act um, and is one that is meant to celebrate um, not just the things that we do, but also the bodies that we're in. And for me, it was very hard for a long time to understand the body that I was in to be beautiful. And so I believe, and I teach a course here at the university called Race, Fashion, and Beauty. Mm. Um, I believe that um beauty and aesthetics and um, kindness and generosity to oneself, mm -hmm. all of these things are gestures of political caretaking mm. and sort of radical generosity to the self and to one's community. And, and by community, I mean racial kin or, um, you know, marginalized community kin. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I, I want to read and know more about this. <laughs> what are some uh, resources that I can uh, personally sort of, I mean, can I take the class first and foremost? <laughs> you should teach the class. Shannon. Oh, no, no. I cut my own bangs this week. It did not go well. So I, I, I will sit at the back of the room, but um, I'd love to learn from you. Um, what are some resources that are, I love this idea of beauty making and, and beauty as a political act of caretaking for community. Mm -hmm. You're the first person that's shared this with me and you've really just inspired me today so much. Thank you for that. Oh, you're so kind. I mean, one of my favorite texts and one of the texts that the students really respond to is Anne Chang's um, recent book on ornamentalism, in which she's riffing on Orientalism and talking about how for, um, she's talking about a yellow woman feminism for, um, for an Asian woman. It's about being transforming oneself into the subject of humanity when already your identity has become has started off as something static objectified and um, material so I, I think that that's it's a really great book um, it started off as a really great article and she's just a really great scholar so I recommend her work Oh gosh, I can't wait to start reading that. Mm -hmm, a book mm -hmm. that a book that evolved out of an article. Yeah. That's that's creativity yeah. right there too. Yeah. Any other uh, resources off the cuff that you can share? And you know what, I will link to these in the show notes um, for anyone interested as well. Yeah, I mean, in the course, we read a lot of um, a combination of cultural studies text, so a lot of um, text about you know fashion designers we we do a unit on black dandyism we do a unit on influencers we also read literary texts who read tam matonji's shut up you're pretty um works like that you know just a combination of bipoc celebration to be honest how amazing yeah. i really am serious now i want to take this class <laughs> can i can i audit i'll send you an email afterwards no, no. Um, I would I would be remiss if I also didn't share um, that, uh, you know, one of the podcasts or YouTube videos that you were in, you mentioned that your name, Hyejan, means grace and beauty. I think this was actually one of your interviews with. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I just thought that was so beautiful. So I love that um, 
beauty is central to your life in so many ways. Thank you. I wish I had more grace, though. (laughs) I'm still working on that part. (laughs) I think you're doing great in that area. I have every time I see you in anything, whether it's a meeting or um, in these many interviews, I think she is so graceful and poised. Teach me everything you know. Actually, since I've got that um, little, you know, I had written down that your name meant grace and beauty. That was part of something that really sparked my imagination as well. I, I will say I'm learning so much from everything that you do, your your beautiful creative writing, and also your speaking um, around the writing and about um, things in such an in-depth way, drawing on theory. Um, it's been amazing. Um, you mentioned that you are reclaiming your name and that it's an integral part of your subjectivity now and that there is some importance of becoming subjects in one's own discourse as opposed to objects mm-hmm. in the discourse mm-hmm. of others. I wondered if you could um, speak more about that if you're interested in sharing a bit about that. Sure. Um, When I say that, I'm paraphrasing um, a scholar from UC Davis, Mark Jern, who who wrote a book called Claiming Others. And he said that we need to shift the conversation away from, um, in the case of his text, uh, white adoptive parents, who are the sort of arbiters of narrative, and transform adopted individuals into subjects in in our own conversations, as opposed to props, objects, sidekicks, um, you know, uh, images of some kind. And, and I think part of, for me, that gesture of becoming a subject is um, is being called by my proper name by people whom I feel deserve to call me by that particular name. Um, So it's also not just like a free for all um, across the board. Um, But also I think wanting to reclaim what I think now is something beautiful in the pronunciation of that name. Um, Because growing up, it was very embarrassing to, to know that name and for it to be constantly mispronounced in my childhood by, um, by my family. Um, so, so it's, you know, it's as one is always learning more about themselves and for an adoptee, that means you're constantly learning new narratives and shifting narratives and false narratives and, um, ambiguous narratives, uh, a name, which many of us, I think, take for granted is also one of these amorphous and always, shifting and changing things for an adopted person. I hope it's okay that I have used. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it's a name that I use professionally as well, because I feel um, it was robbed of me. And thus on paper, my race was robbed of me. And so. Um, I'm so, so sorry you had that experience. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm fine with it, but it's a way for me to signal um, what to me is the most important part of my identity, and that is my race. And so on paper, it's the, it's the only way I can signal that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. You mentioned that um, part of, um, you know, your life is about learning more and more about yourself. And one of the most beautiful um, uh, things that sort of came across my listening as I was engaging with some of your interviews was that you mentioned that you, through your storytelling and your creativity, um, have almost read yourself and your experiences into existence when you are reading um, your work aloud. And I love that idea that we can read ourselves into existence or uh, perhaps if it's okay for me to uh, take this in, in a bit further um, and I'm wondering if this is something that you know all artists have the option of doing is also to write ourselves into existence to tell our stories and to keep to keep telling our stories and they shift as we as we shift mm-hmm. um, can you uh, speak to that a bit? Sure. And and I'm glad that you point this out, that story is alive. And even a life story, even a memoir is alive. And it's, you know, it's a, you know, captured expression of a particular moment um, in someone's life. But it's, it's still a live object and an organic object. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and yes, this idea of narrating ourselves into existence. Well, a lot of people ask, you know, was writing a memoir therapeutic? Did you feel that it was therapy? Um, quite to the contrary, in fact. Um, I don't I don't know if that's a healthy way to approach life writing, to be honest. But um, but sometimes, and I don't know if you feel that this happens to you, but sometimes when something happens to me, it's almost as though I like gaslight myself into not believing that something could be true or that something has happened. And mm-hmm, it's not I the do. act that write, of writing that makes me believe that it's happened. But because I'm such a lover of literature and such a sort of student of literature, it's the reading that is most impactful to me, even when it's, you know, this sounds really um, cocky, but even when it's the reading of my own writing, that's what resonates more. It's not the act of writing at all. Um, I have such a love for the written word and so much love for the act of reading that that's where, um, that's where the special sort of moment of recognition happens for me. And when you say reading, um, the first time you mentioned it, I was thinking, you know, that you're bringing voice and reading aloud. But do you mean um, kind of in, in two parallel ways, reading visually and also reading aloud? Or do you mean um, mostly through the reading out loud? Um, yeah, I, I just mean, I think, the act of like the word on the page. Mm. Um, I have so much admiration for um the writers that I love to read and the friends that I have who are writers themselves I have so much um they they do things with so much grace and with so much care that one can only sort of I think cow in the presence of people who care about language so much and about expression and creating an image in a reader's mind's eye. Um, so so it's, it's the reading back that gets me emotional. And there are certain passages in my own memoir that I didn't bat an eye writing, but when I have to read them in front of an audience, I choke up. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I, you have just put into words the experience that um, I felt many times reading and, and also reading your work as well, Jenny, um, that intimacy and um, that sort of artistic connection of intimacy that is, as you said, so eloquently graceful, purposeful, full of care. Um, and and that's always an honor. You know, I'm, I'm finding that um, many of the Things that I engaged with spoke to reading um, and how much reading is a part of your uh, both scholarship and creative work um, Mm -hmm. and also how it contributes to your artistry. I I recall at one point you said, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't think I took this down, but I found this very Mm -hmm. fascinating for myself as I'm considering doing some creative writing as well Mm -hmm. in in the future. Uh, This idea that, you know, even if we don't have a a kind of background in literary studies or creative writing that we, the reading is the thing, mm-hmm. you know, the reading is, is the sort of training ground. Um, so I apologize if that's a, a paraphrasing of the sort of memory of coming across that, but uh, would you say I'm on the right track with that? And if so, can you speak to, to your engagement with reading and what it does for you? Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely um you know, uh, citing me correctly or accurately here. And and because I believe that reading is the most important thing that one can do if one is aspiring to write or in the process of writing, because it's, it's how we converse with other authors that we decide and make the decisions that we are going to, how we're going to portray our stories. Right now I'm teaching... Um, an intercession course called uh, Reading to Write. And mm, um, can I take that too? <laughs> <laughs> it's a first year course. You're way overqualified. Um, I'm coming but, tomorrow. 
But right now, for instance, um, the students are reading and writing about creative nonfiction. And and the exercise is how do we think about the character so that we're not sort of misaligning the speaker with the author? What are the ways that we read into how our narrator is things, saying things, not just what they're saying. What they're saying, I mean, we can all figure that out. That's on the surface. But what is the subtext? What is the scaffolding that's been removed from the conversation? What do we mm. never learn about? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how do we know this character? How do we read this character? So when the students were workshopping, I was asking them, you know, bizarre questions that and and they were like you know this is a kind of character who's caring and loves their mother and these kinds of things and my question to them was but what does your character wear to, for halloween <laughs> what kind of movies do your characters like to watch this is the kind of stuff that i'm interested in and this is what it means to be a careful reader is to is to read not just what's on the page but to but to um to think about what's not being said on the page and why it's not being said. Thank you for speaking to that. You know, when I was engaging with your many um, uh, YouTube uh, engagements, I think maybe my favorite uh, thing that would come up, uh, you know, at various times, and some of them was uh, this idea of um, not, you know, being fully... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like using some art artistry, essentially, to sort of say things in a in a, an artistic way. Um, I even have a quote here. Let me try to find it as I'm trying to grab my my memory back here. That yes, beneath the level of text or just in the margins. I love this. I'm putting this. I'm putting this on my uh, board forever, Jenny. Um, you said I love this idea of being visible and having something surveyed. But then the things that are beneath the level of text or just like in the margins are where it's at, I think. And I sat with that for a while and I thought, oh, yes, you know, that, that is we see that in theater, too, you know, in, in playwriting and in, in acting on stage. This idea that, you know, there's there's something that's said and then there's what's not said. And it's mm -hmm. so evocative, so interesting. And then you, you share that um, not having to say everything outright, in fact, holding much back and in doing so saying something else, maybe hopefully something more. I, I felt like that little quote was a bit of a masterclass for me in terms of thinking about artistic writing. Um, is there anything more you wanna share about that uh, with our listeners? I mean, it, it's not an original idea. I don't want to be sort of um, falsely credited with, um, you know, Hemingway's theory of omission, essentially, but also many other brilliant writers' um, use of silence. But I will say, it, it reminds me when I was a student, um, a lot of people were studying books like The Woman Warrior. They were studying Obasan. They were studying these um books by uh, Asian diasporic women um, where in a lot of their narrators, and these are life stories that are semi-autobiographical novels in some ways. Hmm. And a lot of people were commenting on how silent these characters were, not just in what they were telling their intended audience or their implied audience, but also in their interactions with other characters. And, and I want... Um, one of the things that I learned as a student from from my professors and that, that has stayed with me for a long time is that silence does not equal not speaking and silence does not equal passivity. Um, mm -hmm. And that's maybe a cultural piece. Um, I suspect that there are cultural elements to that, but there's a lot of power in holding back and maintaining boundaries, I think, and expecting your reader to come more than halfway to you. Because mm -hmm. um, I just feel, you know, as an adopted person, as a queer person, as a person of color, that we always are coming more than 50% of the way to meet the mainstream. And it's time for people to, like, come to me. Absolutely. It's exhausting, I'm sure. <laughs> To say the least, I'm sure it must be. Well, but, but you do it like in a cute way and an aesthetic way in your writing and in a way that makes people feel embraced and invited to the conversation. So it's not, you know, just like, um, you know, a confrontational accusation. It's 
it's a gentle and subtle and sleight of hand lure mm-hmm. towards you. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you spoke a bit about uh, boundaries. I wonder if you wanted to share a bit more about that and this idea of power. Um, another one of my, I love quotes. I'm just going to let you know that. I, I love quotes and I, I hang on to them, you know, as sort of um, inspiration. And one of the things that you said, and I can't find it in my little notes here, but it was about um, feeling uh, powerful and soft all at the same time. I, I thought that is so uh, speaks to the artistic uh, process. Um, so I wonder if you want to speak about both of these things, essentially, the, the the role that Boundaries has in your work, in your storytelling, and also this process uh, of writing that has um, supported this soft powerfulness. I love that idea. Sure. Please and thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially for a life writer, Boundaries um, are essential to surviving like the book tour the festival tour all of these things um because there's sort of this unspoken contract between the audience and the life writer that you're going to give them everything but that's not a contract that any life writer has ever signed Mm -hmm. and so um so it's very important i think to be very firm about one's value and consent Mm -hmm. um and boundaries. And and a lot of my writing is about consent and not just consent in, um, in the important ways we talk about it um, in relation to violence and abuse, but also consent to be looked at in the way that one wants to be looked at, consent to be engaged with in the way that one wants to be engaged with, and, you know, having the confidence to say no. But that's not something that comes easily. It's something that comes after a long period of time and sometimes um, is ambiguous still. Um, in terms of, you know, feeling power in softness, for me, you know, Shannon, it comes from the fact that I'm not a very confrontational person. Um, and I feel that the way that I can express um, any kind of power myself is, uh, is in a gentle way. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, um, I'm not going to be someone who's, you know, forceful and aggressive, or I don't like myself when I am in those situations, mm-hmm. and and it frightens me to be in those situations, um, mm-hmm. or or my own um, hardness sometimes frightens me, and I want to be soft, and I want to, um, I I want to believe and understand that softness is not the same thing as weakness. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. Um, Everything that you just said, I feel the exact same way. Do you find that um, your gentleness, your non-confrontational nature, when you are living those values and living that nature, that um, you're met with others that are sharing these same uh, embodied values? Or do you find that you're often sort of um, having to continually choose that softness and gentleness? um, Because you may be in contexts where there's a lot of different (laughs) nervous systems that are more, um, I suppose, we'll use the word hard or uh, activated. (laughs) Right. Activated. It's funny. Um, the, I, I laugh because that's what I say when I don't want my dog to wake up. Um, <laughs> when I wake up, because then he has to go outside and go peace. I'm like, don't activate him. Um, but, um, but of course, we live with other people in the world. And so I try to have empathy for um, the different reasons that people are harder or act in the ways that they do. Mm-hmm. As you know, we work in a university which has people of all sorts of personalities and whose uh, pasts express themselves in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say I, I'm empathetic and I am soft at the beginning, but um, there are certain lines that if crossed with me 
it's not that I'll be confrontational, but um, I'll just like ignore it for someone. <laughs> <Eventually>, <laughs> I just, that's the way that I place a boundary in mm-hmm. my life is um, first of all, understanding the value of the light that I bring to people's lives mm-hmm. and then taking that away if you cross me. Oh, I love that. So it's not about being mean or not about being like aggressive with people, but, um, but you know, I understand myself to be someone who brings with me into the world, I think, laughter often. Mm-hmm pretty things, mm-hmm. um, funny things, kind things. And so to mm-hmm. take that away is, um, I think that's pretty shady. I don't know. <laughs> I really love that you're sharing this. Thank you so much for sharing this. Um, this has actually come up in some of the other conversations that I've had so far with mm-hmm. some of our um, amazing um, women, uh, academics and artists this idea of, um, you know, taking care of self and, uh, yeah, one of, one of my other colleagues mentioned the same theme of just sort of removing herself Mm -hmm. if she senses that it's, it's not for her and that that's Mm -hmm. how she can preserve her ability to do the amazing, amazing amounts of creative work and scholarship that she's got on the go at any given moment. Mm -hmm. Um, do you find that that helps you too? You know, I think, yes, it does, because I think there's a difference between removing oneself and missing out on opportunities and removing oneself and recognizing that those people who have wronged you are missing out on something. Mm-hmm. They're missing out on beauty and grace. <laughs> that could, And that can be put into a piece of creative writing, right? <laughs> Maybe. Um, or, yeah. or perhaps a piece of visual art. I wanted to ask, what, what kind of visual art were you uh, doing? Was it painting or drawing? It was a lot of sketching and drawing. I liked that a lot. Um, when I was the littlest bird, oh man, my parents still have this framed um, painting, a watercolor painting of a peacock that I had in like the local gallery when I was in second grade. I was like oh. the only girl from my school. I was so enamored with visual arts. Um, so this is... Um, this, I think, is as close as I'm going to get to that to that girl. <laughs> but, do you still do some painting now? Is that something that you engage with once in a while? I mean, not really. I don't too much. Um, I like to do crafts here and then, um, here and there, I should say. But, um, but I'm finding the combination of my literary studies training and, you know, the skills at my disposal right now that creative writing has has really fulfilled that desire and that sort of image driven desire for me because because my writing is um imagistically driven i think oh i love i love that you shared that thank you so much what do you mean when you say that it's imagistically driven if you could uh, open that up a bit further i do sure. I, I have to say jenny you know i um I still have uh, images from the book. I thought, my gosh, when I I read that book very slowly in pieces, and Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm going to have these images for life. This is one of those texts that we cherish that uh, is so image-driven. So I I really can't thank you enough for sharing that. Um, You're very sweet. How does that come about in your writing? Please let us know. Yeah, sure. First of all, I'm glad to hear that you read it slowly because I'm always afraid that readers are going to ask for their money back once they realize how short the book is. Oh my so gosh. It's good that people read slowly. Um, it's so poetic. You're very sweet. You know, I have um, a new colleague here in English who is a brilliant. Um, prose writer, novelist, um, creative nonfiction writer, short storyist, mm. who, um, who when we speak, it's like, I feel like my head is spinning because she's like, and then the characters could do this and then they could do this. And I'm just like, w- like, whoa, you need to slow down. Like, I don't understand <laughs> how people can think about plot and character um, at the forefront because in my mind, I'm like, but you know, what is she seeing when she's looking out the mm. window kind of mm-hmm. thing? And, and I'll spend, you know, a thousand words describing the color of a leaf. Um, it, it's interesting because that's what drives 
the kind of writing that I like to do. And it's um, language and image. Mm-hmm. Whereas the kind of writing she likes to do is very story driven. And so I, I think it's wonderful that there are so many kinds of writers mm-hmm. um, and who approach writing in very different ways. But I think largely it's because I take most of my inspiration from poetry. Mm-hmm. That's and, great to um, hear. Thank you for sharing that. Right. And so I, I feel that um, I'm most inspired when I'm reading poetry and. I'm a wannabe poet at heart, I think. (laughs) Well, this brings us back to sort of the beginning of how this all came about. You had published two poems. um, And then you, um, so can you tell us what that was like when you first um, started writing and publishing your poetry? I mean, were you writing poetry prior to that time um, when you were in high school or, you know, uh, as a young person? Or was that, were those poems your your first uh, writings of poetry that then got published that then led you down this creative writing path? Yeah. Um, I mean, I took writing classes when I was in high school, mm-hmm. um, which were fine, I guess. Um, complicated situations that led me away from writing, in Mm. fact, for um, a couple of decades. Um, Those two poems that I published in Rice Paper Magazine were my first attempt at poetry and my first attempt at creative writing since childhood, in fact. Um, And I was happy that they were published. and, And they sort of gave me the confidence to start writing this memoir, which began as prose poems, in fact. And mm-hmm. I relied very heavily on my brilliant editor to organize those prose poems into the semblance of an anchored narrative, um, because I don't think about narrative at all. <laughs> and so um, and so, so those were my first attempts. Um, I know I've been told it's incredibly bratty to say that um, one day I decided to write a book and then I did kind of thing. But, um, but, you know, I, I didn't go down the traditional path of the creative writer taking an MFA, doing workshopping, um, publishing in literary journals, um, I just sort of like emerged like a debutante. <laughs> I love that. Um, and, and the reason why I think that it's okay to, to find one's path regardless is that a lot of the writers of color that I know who are of my generation, so folks who didn't do an MFA, people who aren't like millennials or younger, um, we did PhDs in non-creative areas first. And it's because the publishing world hasn't changed that much, but it's changed slightly. And there is slightly more access for marginalized writers nowadays. But that wasn't a safe avenue, it seemed, at the time that we were going through school. In the late 90s, when I was choosing um, what program I was going to take or what my educational and career pursuits were going to be, um, creative writer was not an option. Mm-hmm. So I speak to a lot of my friends um, who are in similar positions with a PhD in geography or a PhD in sociology or um, have pursued these other slightly arts related uh, fields, but uh, but it wasn't an option for us. And, and now we're doing it um, mm-hmm. because it's it's slightly different now, but... Um, but, but but yeah, it's different, I think, to come to writing sort of accidentally or in twilight or in secret. It sounds like, um, you know, folks are, be- are making space essentially for themselves to sort of, you know, reshape the field and to have more voices at the table and to have more stories. Um, this came up with one of my other guests as well. This, um, it was such an exciting thing to hear about this idea that um, she had looked to the field and it didn't seem that it really included her. And so she decided to pioneer it, <laughs> to include her, to, to include her work. And um, I wonder if, if you can speak a bit to that, 
is that um, what's happening, I suppose. And I'm, I'll just say, you know, my, my field is not the field of, of literary study. So I'm so curious to hear how, uh, you know, you've said that there, wa- there has been just slightly a little bit more space. Mm-hmm. And um, please, mm-hmm. you know, if you would uh, sort of inform me a bit about what that looks like and where, where you think things are headed. Sure. I mean, I don't have too much knowledge on this because, like I said, I wasn't um, trained or raised in a literary creation mm-hmm. um, sort of context. And it's not to say that there weren't hundreds, if not thousands of brilliant, in my case, Asian American, Asian Canadian writers, because I read them also mm-hmm. and admired and adored them. So it's not... Um, this isn't sort of a false representation that, you know, now is the moment when like these things are emerging. They've, they've been emerged for a long (laughs) time. Um, But I think that um, it's hard for me to answer this, Shannon, because I feel like I have a skewed sample. I live in a BIPOC and a queer bubble where Um, My friends, colleagues, and people that I spend time with um, are part of those communities. And so to me, it feels like um, there's so much vibrancy, there's so much brilliance, there's so Mm. much creativity. Um, All of my friends, all of my peers um, that I talk to about writing are fluffing brilliant people, Mm. and they're all from community. Um, but I know that that's not an accurate sample of what publishing looks like um, in -hmm. the world, um, Mm -hmm. in North America specifically. And I recently read something that I think the Writers' Union put out that said, you know, there's very little shift in terms of writers of color and or indigenous writers and or marginalized writers in any way being published in mainstream presses. However, there's a large representation um, in juried awards of those authors. And so I'm not sure what to make of that because I'm not a sociologist and I feel if I look at a pie graph, I'm going to start crying. But (laughs) um, or if someone tries to confront me with numbers, I'm going to, I don't know, have a panic attack and have to take medication and take a seat. But but it tells me that there's a shift happening, but we don't know, or I don't know what it means yet. Um, But I want more. I don't care if it mm-hmm. seems as though um, there are a lot of writers of color and or queer writers um, and or indigenous writers being published. I don't care. I want more. Mm-hmm. Um, because even if people say, you know, it's 50% BIPOC now, that's like a lot of races of people that are making up that 50% of um, that pie to hammer home that analogy mm-hmm. again. So you know, there's, there, we always need more. That's the moral of my life, I guess. <laughs> abundance, abundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Always more. I, I hear in the way that you're sh- sharing about you, this community, that they have provided an abundance of support mm-hmm. and um, kinship and um, friendship and love. Um, would you say that that has supported you in your creative work and continues to now? Um, and also, would you share with us what you're working on, if you can yeah. uh, share what you're working on, just the connection between community, communities of care, and uh, how that feeds into your your creative work yeah. and anything you want to share about what's coming next for you, sure. please. Yeah, thank you for this question, because um A couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, I was commissioned to write a piece for Room magazine um, out of Vancouver, and I I decided to write a fragmented creative nonfiction essay that I called um, an epilogue of BIPOC love, and it was a scattered essay that wove together some reflections on overseas adoption and reunion, but mostly were vignettes or images of image poems of um, BIPOC writers and individuals in my life that um, in the end 
were the thing that I was looking for. So mm-hmm. from my experience as a reunited or a post-reunion adoptee, I had in my mind a long time what cultural community would feel like and what biological community would feel like and what care community would feel like. And I searched after it um, and found a lot of celebration, but also a lot of heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And, but what has emerged is a writing and artistic and BIPOC community from that, that actually is what I was looking for. Oh, that's so amazing. And so, um, so that was the piece that I wrote and I wrote it as an epilogue to the memoir that I wrote because, you know, those relationships emerge after the fact Mm -hmm. and one comes to that realization after the fact. And so, so I was really honored to have been given the opportunity to, you think you get the last word with the memoir, but then to have another last word mm-hmm. after that was was a real gift, I think. Um, right now, I'm working on two projects. One is an upmarket um, book that I'm co-authoring with another Asian-Canadian writer. Um, and it is, well, I shouldn't say too much. It's a surprise, but, <laughs> um, but it's, it's in the rom-com genre. Fun. And and it's uh, hilarious but sad also. Oh, sounds great. And, um, and the other is a contemporary literary fiction that's set mostly in Korea and uh, is very, very loosely inspired by um, the one surviving Korean adopted child of Jim Jones who defected from the cult before Jonestown. Mm. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. <laughs> Thank you. I look forward to that. Um, before we end, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, just to, to come back to just moments ago when you were speaking about the community and what what emerged um, through the writing of the memoir was this beautiful community of care. Um, would you say then that I know earlier in our time together, you mentioned that what emerged was unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um and would you say that this is this is similar, that what emerged through the process of writing the memoir was this community and, it, and that it was unpredictable as well, that there's almost like an iteration here of, um, you know, in, in your life of, of having pursued a creative path um, and you didn't know where it was going to lead and it led to this opening up of community and care and... Uh, friends all over the place and, um, you know, colleagues um, that you would not have predicted early on. It sounds like it's been quite a journey. Um, Would you say that that's, that I'm on the right track here with this as well? Yeah. And and it's offered um, a sense of unaloneness. I mean, we work at the same institution. You know what the racial makeup is at this Mm -hmm. institution. Um, And so it's offered a pathway to people with whom I can share, I think, um, not just experience, but also uh, genuine care. Mm. Um, and, And to start off with memoir is, it seems, first of all, like a very... Um, narcissistic overconfident thing, I think. Um, I'm shaking my head going, what? Um, But it's also been a lovely gateway into more creative fictional writing. Mm. Um, and, And it allowed me to sort of bridge with comfort, like my scholarly knowledge and research into sort of like dip your toes into the creative world a little bit and then um, fortunately to have been accepted and to now have the courage to really flex one's imagination um, Mm. and do some fiction writing. Um, So yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for you. I'm really thrilled um, (laughs) to have spent this time with you and to also imagine what the future holds with all of your many creative pursuits and um i will be uh you know pre-ordering everything oh <laughs> so please, boy, keep me no, please let me just send you copies don't waste your money <laughs> 
and I'm also going to be in your class tomorrow. I hope that's not oh, going to get what? awkward when I sneak uh, in at the back. I'll wear a mask. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we um, close? I mean, I just want to thank you for the good work that you're doing here. It's It takes a lot of courage, I think, to, um, to talk about creativity and scholarship in the same sentence and to do it in a public forum and in a forum that is inclusive, I think, to a variety of people um, and audiences. I, I think that, uh, that your hard work uh, is much appreciated, um, at least by me and I'm sure by many others. So thank you. You are so kind. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege and an honor to spend time with you. And um, I'm glad we had this time to connect. Me too. Uh, hopefully I'll see you on campus in real life. You know, we'll Absolutely. meet for the first time, my gosh, in real life. And you don't have to wait for your bangs to grow out. I... <laughs> <laughs> I've got to get in for an actual you you <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm using a lot of hairspray to try to make this, you know, not look as noticeable. <laughs> no, no. Uh, have an amazing um, uh, weekend and thank you so much for your, your time today and thank for sharing you. your expertise and your artistry with our listeners. Really appreciate oh. it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you want to learn more about any of the resources we spoke about in this episode, please check out our show notes on voicingcreativity.com, where you can also email or send us a voice memo with your feedback at podcast at voicingcreativity.com. You can follow us at Voicing Podcast on Twitter, and you can tweet about the podcast by using the hashtag Voicing Creativity Podcast. You can also rate and review this show at Apple Podcasts. The Voicing Creativity Podcast was produced on Treaty One territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Metis Nation. The Voicing Creativity Podcast is supported by the University of Winnipeg Research Office, the University of Winnipeg Human Research and Ethics Board, and the University of Winnipeg Faculty of Arts, and by research assistant Jordan Berkwin. A special thank you to Dave Peterson of Ross River Dana Territory. The podcast theme song is Beauty Is All by Ketza from the album Creative Center. You can download more of their work on freemusicarchive.org and from their website, ketzamusic.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other Season 1 episodes. Thank you for listening to the Voicing Creativity Podcast. Thank you.